Welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast, the podcast focused on helping civil engineering professionals succeed by exposing them to interesting civil engineering projects and successful civil engineering professionals around the world. Hosts Anthony Fasano and Christian Knutson had successful but unconventional civil engineering careers and now focus on helping civil engineering professionals achieve their goals in work and life. Welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and this is the podcast specifically for civil engineers who want to succeed. In today's episode, I will be talking with Rick De La Guardia about how hurricanes will affect the future of the civil engineering industry and really the built world. Rick's name may sound familiar for those of you longtime listeners as he was a guest on episode 36 with his book, Engineer to Entrepreneur. But for obvious reasons, I had him come back on the show because he is a hurricane expert and we're going to get into that. And it's a really, really interesting episode and probably one that was a little more technical than usual, but I think under the circumstances was certainly warranted. So before we get into our civil engineering conversation of the week with Rick, I want to take a moment to recognize our sponsor for today's episode, PPI. I have some exciting news. PPI, our exclusive exam prep podcast sponsor, is giving away $100 Amazon gift cards every month to our listeners. For more information on how to qualify, make sure to listen to my announcement later on in the episode. I also want to take a minute to let everybody know that our Engineering Management Accelerator workshop is officially open for enrollment. In fact, if you're listening to this the day it was published on October 11th, The registration will remain open the rest of the day today until midnight, October 12th for our fall pilot program, but then you'll also be able to register beyond that for next year's programs. However, this pilot program is really a -a once-in-a-lifetime introductory rate that's a dynamite opportunity. It's a five-week intensive online program open to 30 engineers who will go through a series of skill-building courses or webinar sessions aimed at helping them go from engineer to manager and beyond. However, I know what you're thinking. This is not just a series of webinars. Here's the kicker. It's not really a course. At the beginning of the workshop, you will be paired up with a small group of other top performing engineers that are enrolled in the program, and you'll be given an engineering management problem or project. You'll also be given a forum online where you can collaborate with your group, and you'll have a coach. Over the five weeks, using the course material, the coaching, and the collaboration with your team members, you'll present a solution to the problem at the end of the course in the form of a presentation. And then after the course, you'll be presenting the solution to your colleagues or your supervisor in your company like a lunchtime presentation, something of however you end up setting it up. But that's the accountability factor that's going to help you grow as an engineering manager. So for more information and to enroll in the program, go to engineertomanager.com or you can email me, anthony, at engineeringcareercoach.com. I have several corporations enrolling engineers and you can definitely get reimbursed for this program. All right, now I'd like to introduce our guest for today's civil engineering conversation, just so you get to know Rick a little bit more before we dive in. Rick De La Guardia is president and founder of DLG Engineering, Inc., a consulting firm specializing in the design and analysis of building envelope systems to help mitigate storm damage in hurricane-prone regions of the country. Rick earned his Bachelor of Science degree from the University of Miami in 1995. He has over 20 years of experience designing and consulting in all aspects of the building envelope field. He has authored numerous articles and technical papers, which he has presented to the industry and his peers. 
His latest work is a book on engineering entrepreneurship titled Engineer to Entrepreneur, Success Strategies to Manage Your Career and Start Your Own Firm. Rick served as president of the University of Miami College of Engineering Alumni Association from June of 2010 to May of 2012. He has mentored and advised many students and young engineers and is currently chairing a newly formed advisory committee on entrepreneurship and innovation for the University of Miami College of Engineering. And so in this conversation you're about to hear, in this main segment of the episode, we'll talk about hurricanes in general, about the impacts that they'll have long term, and some really interesting misnomers that uh, Rick dispels around the wind speeds and the categories, etc., And then in the end segment of the show, instead of our regular hot seat, since Rick's already gone through that, I asked him a little bit about how these hurricanes and these weather patterns may change education in the future for civil engineers, which is also kind of an interesting component to this episode. So with that, let's jump right in here to the civil engineering conversation. Civil engineering podcast. Civil engineering podcast. All right, now it's time for the Civil Engineering Conversation of the Week, and I have with me back on the Civil Engineering Podcast today, Rick DeLaGuardia, author of Engineer to Entrepreneur, Success Strategies to Manage Your Career and Start Your Own Firm. However, we're not going to be talking about that today. We're going to be talking about a different topic of hurricanes. Rick, welcome back to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Thanks for having me back. So, Rick, I gave a little bit of intro, of course, on you and your background, but in your own words, before we jump in here and get into this topic of hurricanes, which is obviously something that's really important right now to the world and to civil engineers, talk about how you got involved with hurricanes. Actually, explain what you do and how you got involved in it. My field of uh, expertise is uh, rather unique, and it's uh, dealing with hazard mitigation of the building envelope. And most of the hazards that we encounter in the coastal cities are from hurricanes. My involvement started back in 1993, shortly after Hurricane Andrew uh, devastated parts of South Florida. And about a year after that, I went to work for a specialty firm that did envelope design. And envelope design is anything to do with the building exterior, uh, curtain walls, storefronts, windows, doors. And in my opinion, that's the weakest link. That's the first line of defense of any building. Your concrete, your steel framework is not going to be threatened during a storm, but what's going to be threatened is the cladding, the components, the exterior shell of the building, that that if it's penetrated, then anything on the inside, including the roof, is in danger. So basically, that's where I got my feet wet, so to speak. Uh, Back in 1993, I joined a firm that specialized in windows, doors, and back when Andrew hit, we here in South Florida didn't know what to do either. So we had to study, learn lessons uh, that Andrew taught us, update the code, look at testing protocols, uh, products, how we designed them, how we installed them, how we inspected them. So this comes back since 1993, and that's all I've been doing since then, is specializing in uh, hurricane mitigation design. Awesome. And the reason that obviously I have Rick on is hurricanes have been prevalent lately, one after the next in the Caribbean islands. Uh, Puerto Rico just got hammered with another hurricane, obviously Irma, a few weeks ago. So It's very relevant right now, and really for civil engineers, we work on the built world, right? We're focused on designing and improving structures and designing new structures. So if these weather patterns are going to continue and continue to get worse over time, that's obviously going to affect the way that we do our job, which is why I wanted to talk to Rick about that today. So Rick, just to start off, let's just get into the basics first for those not that familiar with hurricanes. Maybe you could describe what a hurricane is, and specifically around... When engineers, or I guess anybody who's living in these buildings in these areas, need to worry about it, we hear all these things about different wind speeds and different categories. Maybe you could just shed some light on that. 
basically a hurricane is obviously a, a large weather system that comes uh, brings with it extreme forces and winds and that picks up of debris and then there's also the storm surge that it brings from the strength of the winds so there's three things really you need to consider an engineer needs to consider when designing for hurricane mitigation it's the uh, the wind and i want to clarify a misconception that's out there that products or buildings are designed for wind speed they're designed for pressure in the code wind speed is but one factor in the pressure equation and it's actually a squared factor along with uh, terrain around the building along with uh, the position of the product on the floor plan of the building and altitude roof type so there's many different structures that affect the pressure by the wind speed being squared every mile per hour greater or stronger will increase or decrease the pressure on a building. So products and buildings are not designed for wind speed. If somebody tells you my house is designed for 175 miles per hour or my product is, that's an incorrect statement. It's designed based on pressure. So you take the wind speed, you determine your individual pressure, and then you design based on that. I'll give you an example. You can have a single-story building, and right next to it, a high-rise building, the same wind speed is going to cause radically different pressures for those two structures because the high-rise is taller. You have uh, certain considerations for terrain. So it's going to be something that you need to focus on your unique design pressure when you're designing for either a product or a building. So that's the wind. Then comes the wind-borne debris. So whatever the wind picks up from the ground or from adjacent buildings, uh, rooftops, and uh, it's been determined by code that elevations of 30 foot or less will tend to pick up larger debris. So if you live uh, on a single family residence or a two to three story residence, you're going to have to design for larger debris. And uh, in the state of Florida, that's called the large missile impact test, which is basically a two by four that is shot out of, out of a laser guided cannon at 50 feet per second. And it's shot at your window three times and it must remain operable after that. That's called the large missile impact test. This is a protocol that we have here in South Florida. Above 30 feet, it's called the small missile impact criteria, and that's basically ball bearings. So you shoot 30 ball bearings in a group, in three groups of 10 at the product. And that's basically because uh, it's uh, been studied and researched that smaller debris are, is what you're going to encounter above 30 feet. Some, but some used to be gravel on adjacent roofs would, would be picked up or smaller debris will rise that high. So that's the windborne debris criteria. And the third one is water which can be in the form of water infiltration through wind-driven rain, or it can be in the form of a storm surge, which a majority of the hurricanes recently, uh, I think in Harvey in Texas, was more of a storm surge event. So was Katrina that was more of a storm surge event. And even uh, Sandy in New York was more of a water and flood rated event. So that's very dangerous. That's probably where the most lives are lost. Unfortunately, the code does not have, a, in my opinion, an adequate testing protocol for flood mitigation design. They do have one for wind and wind debris and uh, hurricane-prone regions. They're mostly focusing on the strength of the wind and the impact, windborne debris, but they're not really focusing on testing protocols for flood, and we're seeing that in New Orleans and in Texas and, and certainly that, and even in Sandy, that needs to be, in my opinion, studied a little further. So basically, a hurricane is going to impose hazards of uh, speed and power of the wind, debris that it picks up and slams against your house, and then uh, storm surge or water infiltration. Interesting. And that missile testing is interesting as well, which I wasn't aware of. But 
when you get to these categories, Rick, when you say, can you say like my, this skyscraper, this building is designed for a category four storm. Does that mean that they're backing into it by the pressures then to figure that out or? Yeah, I would not say that. Again, you can have two high rises, one right by the bay and another exact high rise with exact parameters on the interior. And they could have different design pressures because terrain affects it. If you're in the open water, there is nothing to slow down the wind. If you're in a big city and you have other skyscrapers around you, the wind is going to be mitigated by the other structures and it could cause vortex and buffeting effects. It is an incorrect statement to say I'm designed for category one or two. You have to identify the wind pressure that that category one or two, and the categories are determined based on wind speed, a certain a range of wind speed. So that is not how we design buildings and products. It's based on the pressure. Certainly one can say that my product or my building can sustain 60 pounds per square foot or 130 pounds per square foot. That's dependent on the wind speed as only one factor. The terrain is a factor. The height above grade is a factor, even in corners, even within a building of the same height. You're going to have higher pressures in the corner of a building than you do on the interior plan of a building. So it's a very complex and I think misunderstood field that I've been trying to raise awareness and I do presentations and webinars and I present at the local organizations and even in national organizations to try to raise awareness of this misconceptions. So the next question that's I think a logical next question is why are we seeing more of these hurricanes? Why is the frequency increasing and how's that going to affect codes and our design as civil engineers as we go forward here? And that's an interesting question. I think more apt for somebody in atmospheric uh, field, but there's no doubt that warm weather is fuel for hurricanes. And uh, with the waters getting warmer, it's more fuel and stronger hurricanes are, are developing because of it. And in my opinion, it's been a case where in the past, based on statistical uh, evidence, it's been Florida or Texas primarily that have been really hitting, maybe some of the Carolinas. But historically, only two Category 5 hurricanes, now three, if you include uh, a Puerto Rico, but I think that may have been a four. Andrew was one of them and back in 1992, have actually made landfall at a Category 5. It's one of those things where the warmer waters strengthen it and the, as the, the hurricanes get stronger, they can resist more of the driving forces that basically steer it. I think the meteorologists call it the steering current, so the steering I think that's having an effect. So warmer waters, stronger hurricanes, uh, they get steered differently. Obviously, if you're, somebody's trying to hold you back, but you're stronger, you're going to change that pattern. You're gonna, not going to be affected from the So I think those are the two primary reasons. The warmer waters and stronger hurricanes due to the warmer waters are affecting where those go. And now no longer is it a Florida event anymore. You see Texas, you see New York, you see certainly the Caribbeans have always been threatened. But Puerto Rico, it's, I think it's, it's certainly the most powerful storm that's actually made landfall in Puerto Rico from what I hear. So this is not going to slow down, in my opinion. It's only going to get worse with the warmer waters and more states need to take this into account. All the coastal states, which is ironic because ASCE, the American Society of Civil Engineers, has a standard, ASCE 7, that identifies hurricane-prone regions that are supposed to design to these design events, but very few of them do. Uh, Florida got the lesson or learned our lesson when Hurricane Andrew hit. And then uh, Katrina in New Orleans and I think even New York starting to wake up a little bit. But everybody in the East Coast needs to be prepared, in my opinion, for stronger hurricanes and more threats in the future. And of course, I'm not here with Rick to talk about the idea of global warming. I mean, that's a whole nother episode and a whole nother topic. I really want to focus on the hurricane side of things. 
And it does look from all sources that you hear and read about that this is going to be something that happens more often. That being said, Rick, because I know you get involved with codes a lot, and that's something that you're trying to do in Florida, and you look at the damage and you try to see if you need to make changes to the codes. What does that process look like? Like you just mentioned an ASCE guideline. Does a state, can they go out and then change their code? Just explain that for people that don't aren't aware of how that works. And actually, it's another touchy subject because it's political as well. And when I say political, mostly the manufacturers and the contractors, because it, it costs more, certainly, to design a stronger building to resist these forces. I'll give you an example. After Hurricane Andrew hit 92, it was primarily a South Florida event and some of it in Broward. Well, South Florida took heed of that. Back then, we had like five or six different building codes in the state. We had the standard building code, uniform building code, South Florida building code, Broward edition, South Florida building code. Dade County edition. Dade County learned their lesson and Broward followed along and strengthened our codes uh, through the lessons learned from Andrews. Lots of studies were done on the effects. It was found out that a lot of the uh, issues were installation issues, inspection issues, and certainly there was a lot of tweaking in the design issues. But the rest of the state, North Florida, the politicians there, the contractors there, did not want to include this, that strict a code throughout the entire state of Florida. I'll go as far as saying is that today we're actually misled into thinking that we have one Florida building code, where in fact we do have one book, the Florida building code, but we still have two separate requirements. By definition, only Miami-Dade and Broward counties are what's in what's called the high-velocity hurricane zone. So only Miami-Dade and Broward have to design to these stricter requirements of inspection, of installation, of approvals, and the rest of the state will have the more laxed versions of the code. I suspect what will happen is now that, you know, Naples and Tampa and Jacksonville got their version of certainly not an Andrew by accounts, they got hit by a category two hurricane, but they'll probably uh, reassess the codes. Individuals such as myself will go to the areas affected, uh, the Keys and Naples and try to learn from that and try to see what we can recommend through ASCE uh, or other organizations, government organizations, where we can try to help guide them on what changes in the code, if any, should be made going forward. And I'll give you another example. And this is a phrase that I hear a lot about. My house survived Andrew, so I don't need to do any improvements for it. Certainly, you're going to be hearing that going forward. My house survived Irma, so I'm fine. I don't need to upgrade my house. Well, there's a misconception. When you talk about Andrew and Irma's devastating winds, you're talking about the eye and the wind speed surrounding the eye that caused the most drastic pressures. If you're 50 miles away from the eye, 100 miles away from the eye, which a lot of us were, we don't get those devastating forces. So if you see the, from the newscast, from the weather stations, they circle the eye and then the, the winds get weaker as the further away you go from the eye. So here in Miami-Dade and Broward counties, thank God, we uh, experienced tropical storm force winds only. Sustained force winds in the 70 mile per hour range with gusts up to hurricane speeds in the 80s and 90s. Certainly the Florida Keys sustained category four wind speeds and there is much devastation ongoing right now and, and there's a, a big relief effort and you're talking major structural damage. However, the Florida Keys is unique in that they did build up to stricter code requirements than even Miami-Dade and Broward because they're in an island in essence. So they, I don't know if they still do it, but they used to issue permits based on a bidding process. The stronger you make your building, the, the more apt you are to 
and get your permit approved. So a lot of the, and that's one of the things that I'm going to be investigating along with my firm is how did those buildings fare, the ones that were designed to current codes, and by all indications, they fared much better than the ones that were not designed to the code or the older buildings. So I'll be studying that and, and looking into that. But the codes, not only here in Florida, the South Florida, but North Florida and Texas and the Carolinas will have to be studied. And they can be influenced by the data that we obtain in researching this event. Let's just take the keys for an example, since you mentioned them. Obviously, they were devastated. Now, I would think that they're going to plan to rebuild the keys. And when they go and rebuild the keys, how are they going to decide what code to use exactly the process you're just explaining right now? Yeah, obviously. And unfortunately, it's a process of where a lot of the homes that weren't built to code were devastated. So those are going to have to be rebuilt. And once the house is total like that, you have to build to current code. So at the minimum, you have to build to the Florida Building Code, and I think the Florida Keys had a strict code of implementation for new construction. Now, they can't force the existing buildings to that weren't damaged to be built to code, but certainly from here, from this point forward, I'm pretty confident that they'll learn their lesson and they'll try to implement uh, the same strict requirements of new construction going forward for the buildings that are being rebuilt. But that's going to be an interesting question, and I'm sure they're going to want to explore as well. Because some of the houses that were not built to code, uh, I'm sure they were destroyed and, and the debris was used to impact the houses that were built to code. So something's going to have to be resolved there. In that example, what if the Keys now wants to take their already more strict code and make it more strict? How does that process work? What do they have to go through to do that? The state requires minimum standards and we follow the International Building Code. And that's the minimum standard. So Dade County and Broward County take it upon themselves, the building officials in the county, to propose code amendments, code plus, if you will, to incorporate it into their unique code. That is exactly what the high-velocity hurricane zone is in Dade and Broward. So our code is an adoption of the International Building Code. But Dade and Broward County says, okay, well, these sections on glass and glazing, these sections on exterior windows and doors, we want them stronger. So we're going to develop our own criteria such as the protocols. We have testing protocols that they don't have in other parts of the state or the country that require what I was explaining to you, the large missile impact test, the cyclic loading test, the uh, cyclic and wind pressure tests that are stringent, more stringent than the other codes. So yeah, certainly the Florida Keys, the building officials in the Keys can look at this and say, we want to implement uh, something stronger than the International Building Code, and we're going to gather a group of advisors and recommend changes to the code going forward. That's what I wanted to try to understand is where might they involve someone like yourself or private working civil engineers or experts to help them? And it sounds like they would reach out most likely to get that input and advice. It's a public process, even in Miami-Dade and Broward counties. Whenever there's a new code being prepared, they open it up to the public. They invite the public and engineers to the meetings. It's a very inclusive process. So that would be the time where us as engineers or consultants or even architects and contractors, and you're going to have push both ways. You're going to have some people not wanting it, the construction cost to, to skyrocket and some people wanting to have maximum protection. So there's going to be a lot of discussion. It's not done behind closed doors. It's done in an open forum. And there's a, certainly, I think, some of that to be had in the, in the keys. Now, do you think that because of these new weather patterns, that there's a possibility that whether it's developers or owners of large buildings on the East Coast might consider doing, I don't even know if it's possible, but can you do any kind of retrofitting or something to a building to protect it against weather? 
Well, there's certainly retrofitting that can be done. Like I explained earlier, in my opinion, the building envelope is the weakest link, and it's also our first line of defense. So, for example, you have an existing building that their curtain wall or their windows were designed, you know, three code cycles ago. Certainly, you can retrofit the, the curtain walls and the windows to meet current code, and that will be a huge help. Not only will it help structurally, but it will also help with water infiltration on regular stormy days, which is a big issue with buildings designed in, in South Florida because we're really close to the water. So certainly retrofits are an option, but it's going to be cost prohibitive in some instances because if you have a 30-story building to change all the windows and doors, is going to be a, a big expense, and, and that expense would be brought down to condo unit owners or commercial unit owners. It's a tricky situation. Now, you do have the 40-year recertification process, which takes into account that your building after 40 years is still compliant with life safety issues, which includes uh, all the building envelope and uh, structural. But it is a touchy subject uh, because it is very expensive to retrofit a building. Now, if you're talking about a single-family residence, it's not that big of a deal, but you're still talking potentially with impact windows and doors anywhere from thirty to fifty to $60,000 to put an impact windows in a large-size home. So imagine a high-rise. All right, so we're going to take a quick break here, and we're going to come back in our end segment. I want to ask Rick just a few last questions about how everything going on might impact potentially education for civil engineers in the future and just a couple of other questions. So stick with us for a minute. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. Now it's time for our end segment, typically our CE Hot Seat segment, but as I said, Rick has already been through that. So we're going to focus today on talking to Rick about how hurricanes and these weather patterns might change engineering education moving forward. But before I do that with Rick, I want to mention our sponsor for today's episode once again, PPI. If you're preparing for the civil PE exam, you probably know that the Civil Engineering Reference Manual by Michael Lindeberg is the book to use. Michael Lindeberg is actually the founder and president of PPI, the leader in FE and PE exam prep. PPI has new prep courses available for the civil PE exam that offer complete coverage of not only the morning breath exam, but also your choice of afternoon depth exams. The course presents over 60 hours of new content and walks you through tons of exam-like practice problems. When you enroll in the live online prep course, PPI also includes on-demand lectures for free, so you can start studying while you wait for the course to begin. Through October 2017, PPI will be choosing two of our podcast listeners per month to win $100 Amazon gift card if you enroll in this course. To enter the raffle, visit www.ppitopass.com forward slash civil prep. Again, that's www.ppi, the number two, pass forward slash civil prep. From there, you'll need to choose your course and check out. On the checkout page, enter the promo code prep and then complete your enrollment. Again, you need to enter the promo code PREP before completing your enrollment to qualify for the gift card. You'll be notified on the first of the month if you won the $100 gift card. I use PPI for my PE exam prep, so I feel confident in recommending that you check out this prep course. Plus, you could win $100. Good luck. All right, we're back with Rick DeLaGuardia. Rick is a hurricane expert. He works on building envelopes in Southern Florida, and we've been talking about Obviously, the recent hurricanes and just codes in general and what the impacts might be. Rick, in light of everything that's going on, do you foresee any kind of change or added educational requirements for civil engineers, specifically maybe structural engineers that want to work in hurricane-prone regions? 
and that's actually a, a good question. And that's one thing that I've dedicated most of my career to doing is raising awareness. And unfortunately, in uh, higher level education universities or engineering programs, our curriculum are so tight and very little wiggle room to add a specialty that I think is very important. And even in the profession, in the engineering profession, unfortunately, I hate to say it, but I think our specialty is almost given a back seat. People focus on the uh, structure, the steel and the concrete. So there's very little work out there, courses out there for hurricane mitigation design. The best standard that I've uh, seen is from the American Society of Civil Engineers, ASCE 7, and they do have committees and they do have workshops on it. There is also your local building codes. You can get involved with that in the glass and glazing section or the building envelope section. There certainly are sponsored either through ASCE or several other organizations. They have uh, hurricane engineering conferences that are out there that you can attend. I was a presenter at the National Hurricane Engineering Conference a couple of years ago. There are papers through ASCE, through Architectural Engineering Institute. I'm um, vice chair of the Curtain Wall Committee, and we speak about that. So there are opportunities out there, but we certainly need to continue to try to raise awareness of, like you said, uh, how to have a civil engineer who wants to focus on hurricane mitigation design, how to get them more access to information. So I think the best way to do it is to approach the ASCE and look for uh, conferences through them. The more I think about it here as you and I have been talking, you know, when I initially saw these hurricanes happening, I'm thinking like these hurricanes, if they start to increase in frequency, is going to add a lot of work for like civil and structural engineers. And really, unfortunately, it seems that the work is only reactive. In other words, it's only going to happen after the storm in like a tragedy type situation where we need to rebuild. Because like you said, for someone to retrofit a building and learn from this for an existing structure, even in areas like North Carolina, where maybe they haven't had as many, but to see what happened in Florida and to say, they're going to be coming more often, I'm going to retrofit my buildings, it's probably not going to happen. So I think the best thing to do, what it sounds like to me, is to educate people, which is what you're trying to do, and to take good looks at these codes and make amendments or improvements where they need to be, which I know also, like you said, is a touchy situation. But really, because it's such a thing that you can't predict it, it just seems like that's the only way to do it is to focus on making the best codes you can be, make people aware of, and educate people around it. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And and unfortunately, you're absolutely right. It's not until you've been affected by a storm of this magnitude that changes uh, happen. There is very little information out there for a civil engineer to get involved in hurricane mitigation design. But if your members or your audience uh, would want to find out how to get involved, uh, you can feel free to share my information. And like I said, I've been doing this for 25 years and I've presented at conferences. I've been contributor to numerous uh, magazine articles and uh, Glass Magazine or U.S. Glass Magazine. And uh, I present at uh, national conferences and to local engineering groups. So I'd be glad to continue to raise awareness or try to show or guide your readers and your members on how to get involved. We definitely appreciate that. And one last thing I want to say, and this is just my own opinion, and I think something maybe I feel I wanted to get off my chest is that I'm up here in New York, New Jersey, and you hear all these people saying, like, I don't understand why these people don't just evacuate. I think it's hard to say that unless you're actually those people because, and we had to kind of think about that with Hurricane Sandy, but you're asking someone to just pick up and leave their home completely and leave everything behind. And now obviously in some situations like the Keys where it was really, really dire and it was like, I could understand how you could say that. And I think in some respects, people maybe could be smarter about it, but I just don't think it's as easy as people think. 
when you're in that situation, when you're faced with the situation of basically up and in some cases, potentially leaving your life behind. For all of us out there that aren't in these areas, I think we just need to keep an open mind. And really like Rick is saying, I think we all need to educate whenever we can get access to experts like Rick, we need to share the information and educate people. I don't think it's a problem that's going away, but unfortunately, like Rick said, it's a problem where you're more reactive than proactive. I think except with the codes, I think with the codes, we can be proactive now that it's happened. We are reactive, but we could be proactive for next time. So Rick, thanks again for coming on and sharing your knowledge with us. It's always a pleasure to have you on here. Yeah. If I could add to that last part, you're absolutely right. And even within South Floridians, uh, I know that there was um, two sides, those who evacuated, those who didn't. And to try to explain to those that are not in the situation, Part of it is complacency since uh, Florida had not been hit. We've got a lot of scares that we prepared. We hunkered down. We put the shutters up there. We bought the supplies, equipment, and nothing came. Those that are that live by the coast that are in mandatory evacuation zones due to the storm surge, which is the biggest uh, threat in a storm, many of those people have nowhere to go. And uh, if you look at uh, what was affecting us initially, which was uh, Irma at 185 miles per hour, that is, in essence, a large tornado. That's beyond code design. We designed for 175 miles per hour. And if you recall that I said every wind, every mile per hour stronger or weaker exponentially increases the pressure. So if we designed to 175, this was a monster 185. I was considering evacuating at the time. I have the benefit of having in-laws that live further to the west in a very well-secured house that I did evacuate to, but I did not leave the state. However, I was considering leaving the state if we were uh, threatened by the 185-mile-per-hour winds, because that's not a design event, if you, in my opinion. That's a tornado, and the people in the Midwest know very well about that. And the way they try to resolve that is they go on the ground. We don't have that facility. So there was two camps here in Florida, evacuate or don't evacuate. Certainly what happened in, in Hurricane Harvey got a lot of people's attention. And But when you're trying to evacuate and you're looking at one or two or three points of access out of here. You're looking at I-95, the Turnpike, or I-75, and everybody else trying to evacuate at the same time. What if somebody has a flat tire in front of you? What if you run out of gas? To try to uh, ride a storm in your car in traffic is more disastrous in my opinion. We are thinking of ways to combat that so so many people don't have to evacuate. I was part of a workshop with Florida International University, their College of Engineering Department, to try to study trying to hunker down in high-rise buildings that are more structurally sound, able to sustain the stronger winds. The problem there, though, is the services, not necessarily the structural capacity, but you will lose power, you'll lose the elevators, you'll have no access to police or medical attention during the storm. But if we can come up with a network of high-rises that have a safe room that's equipped with you know, backup generators, with food, with medical care, with communications, and uh, try to use that to try to evacuate because, quite frankly, it's difficult to evacuate a city the size of Miami. I think you saw some of that in the news of it took somebody what usually is nine-hour drive to get out of the state of Florida into Georgia. It took somebody 29 to 30 hours. And certainly one tank of gas is not enough, and the entire state was out of gas. And let's say you get cut in traffic and you run out of gas or you get a flat tire or there's an accident. So it's not as easy as, hey, yeah, get out and evacuate. So, and unfortunately, there was, like I said, the two camps started uh, pointing fingers and saying, okay, you guys evacuated, you abandoned it, or we rid it out and you guys are dumb. So yeah, you're right. There's that 
but you have to understand the limitations of evacuating such a large city. And in, in some cases, people have nowhere to go. Or even I considered uh, evacuating if it, we were threatened with 185, and there was no place to go. All the hotels in Atlanta were sold out. All the hotels in Orlando and, and Jacksonville were sold out. And then there's also the possibility of going there. And at one point, the storm came right down the middle of Florida, right to those very areas that people were evacuating to. And those areas are not as prepared as we are down here. If you go to Georgia, we even a category one can make a lot more damage. And certainly the rain, it's not an easy question or decision to make. So yeah, people do have to consider that there's a lot more parameters. And uh, certainly if you have tried to evacuate everyone, there's not enough hotels around. There's not enough shelters. There are not enough uh, automobiles that can be supported on the highways. So that's something to consider. Rick, before I let you go, what is the, your company name and website, if you don't mind sharing it? My firm's name is DLG Engineering, and the website is www.dlgengineering.com. And I'm on LinkedIn, and I also have a Facebook page if, if people want to look me up on there. And I'll be glad to connect and share any information that I can. It'd be my pleasure. And please remember that you'll be able to find the show notes for this episode at civilengineeringpodcast.com. You'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during the episode. You can leave a question in the comments section or visit the Ask Us tab on the website. We monitor all the comments and we will respond if you leave us one. Until next time, I wish you the best in all of your civil engineering career endeavors. Thank you for listening to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Be sure to visit civilengineeringpodcast.com where you can listen to past episodes and also submit your project to be featured on the show. We also invite you to visit our main website at engineeringcareercoach.com and download a free three-part video series created specifically for engineers to help you best utilize LinkedIn for networking, improve your communication and speaking skills, and also help to develop your leadership abilities. Now is the time to engineer your own success.